You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Here comes the new Dionysus, bitches! They're lighting fires in the city now. You can see them burning, standing where you are on the breezy portico that looks out over the mile-wide garden on the outskirts of Rome. Rolling emerald lawns dotted with fountains and statues, sheltered groves and grottos where once you entertained your lover in shaded privacy. He's been dead less than a week. The body you loved riddled with stab wounds and sent up in ashes. Once yours in the gardens and the sleepy porticos, then for a fevered, bloody moment he belonged to the assassins, and now up in smoke to the gods. The son you bore him is asleep and unknowing. Your second child grows in your belly, and now you're alone in the world. The streets of Rome have erupted in violence. They light fires to illuminate the streets, fires to destroy whole neighborhoods, fires to drive back the dark and restore order. It doesn't work. At your knees, the city is thrashing and raging, caught in the grip of its grief. You feel no kinship with people in the streets. You are a queen and goddess, after all. But this night, you have this rage, this grief, in common. He was taken from you, too. The night of Caesar's murder, the night of the Ides, a single star streaked its brilliance across the sky. It's been there every time you looked up, casting madness on the city, its gravity stirring ghosts out of the dust. The priests burn sacrifices and pronounce their prophecies. The gods say nothing one way or another. The sky burns over your heads. Now you can smell the thunderstorm. It's coming, a black tower of clouds that threatens beyond the city, and a wind picks up at your feet. You've lived through these storms before, thunderclaps that shake the walls, strewing the elegant garden with down trees and roof tiles. The child stirs in your belly as if to echo your thoughts. You are in agreement. Caesar's gone. There is nothing in Rome for you now. Caesar ended your civil war and gave you your kingdom. There's no guarantee of safety, returning home with no Roman protector to shore up your power. You may be returning to knives in the dark, to conspiracies, 
an insurrection, but you can't stay here. It's only a matter of time before Rome turns its attention across the Tiber to Caesar's garden villa, before the city turns its fury on you. Your manservant awaits your orders. You turn to him, drawing your cloak up over your face. Wake the child, you tell him. Gather my things and ready the ships. It's time to go. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm the severed head of Crassus in the play The Bacchae. And this is... <laughs> And this is Ancient History Fangirl. <laughs> I'm so excited to be doing this episode with the severed head of Crassus. This has literally never happened in the history of Ancient History Fangirl before. He just inserts himself into every episode in any way he can. Nobody's asked for more Crassus, and yet here we have more Crassus. So just picture me and the severed head of Crassus talking for the next hour or so, however long this winds up being. Just held up like Medusa's head. <laughs> the week... <laughs> I'm dying. The week after the Ides of March, 44 BC, was a week of portents and magic. Julius Caesar had been... St- <laughs> I'm sorry. I just can't... I'm just picturing me and the severed head of grasses. <laughs> just take some time. Forget I said it. <laughs> like trailing gore onto the table. <laughs> dripping on the microphone. Petrifying everything it sees. I might turn to stone, <laughs> but luckily I don't have to look at the severed head of grasses to do an episode with it. Well, you know, why should you? <laughs> I am in London at the time. <laughs> That's true. And apparently so is the severed head of grasses. You would think it was in... It's actually in Parthia. I mean, the time difference. Actually, he's back in stage left waiting to go on in the final act of the Bacchae. <laughs> That's right. He's broadcasting from backstage in the Bacchae. <laughs> He's going to have to go on at any minute. He's just backstage in the wings waiting for his epic appearance. His whole second life in the Parthian, Parthian Theater Company. But there's one thing we can agree on. In that second life, he had fierce eyeliner. Oh my God, yes. Because obviously... So anyway, we're moving on. The week after the Ides of March, 44 BC, was a week of portents and magic. Julius Caesar had been stabbed to death by a group of his closest friends and allies. His wound-riddled body lay in state for days before being carried through the streets and burned in the forum, the flames from his funeral pyre taking several public buildings with them. Meanwhile... In Caesar's lavish garden villa on the outskirts of the city, his lover and the mother of his son, the Ptolemaic queen Cleopatra, watched the skies. She was 25 years old, pregnant with his second child, and now she was alone. We imagine from this villa, Cleopatra had unrestricted... <clears throat> Go slow, severed head of Crassus. Severed head of Crassus needs to stop flubbing his lines. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? He's used to just being there for the shock value. <laughs> He usually doesn't have lines. I mean, this is a whole new thing. <laughs> we imagine from this villa, Cleopatra had an unrestricted view of the city of Rome, which was studded with fires, some started by riots, others lit to keep public order. The day after the funeral, a violent thunderstorm lashed the city while a bloodthirsty mob stalked the streets, baying for the murderer's blood. The week after the assassination, a comet streaked the sky, the Julian star, later used as a sign that Caesar should be deified. Because, of course. I mean, does he even need a sign? He would say no. We don't even have to, like, ask him. We just know that much. <laughs> in life, Caesar had housed Cleopatra in this elaborate garden villa. And here he spent hours with her in a frenzy of energy in the year before his death, 
plotting and planning with her and her astronomers and scientists, philosophers and priests on the great transformation he had planned for Rome. A better calendar, massive public works, a great library to draw the leading scholars from all over the world. And that was only the beginning. But now the villa was quiet as a tomb and Cleopatra was being evicted. Caesar had left the house to the public in his will. Rome was dangerous for Cleopatra. The city itself was plunged into chaos in the wake of its dictator's death. The question of who would rule Rome, under what kind of government, and what violence might be meted out to whom in the transition was still deciding itself. Cleopatra had to go. So about a week after Caesar's funeral, Cleopatra sailed back to her city, Alexandria, the capital of Egypt, to pick up the pieces. She would never return to Rome. The consequences of Caesar's murder were not small for her because her rule was entirely dependent on the favor of Rome. Caesar had been her consort and benefactor. He'd settled a civil war in her favor and given her the military strength to hold power in her own volatile kingdom. But now, now everything was up in the air. If Caesar's assassins took power, Cleopatra and her son Caesarian might be their next target. When she stepped on her ship back to Alexandria, Cleopatra was pregnant again with a second child of Caesar's. But in the months following her return home, she lost the child, probably to a miscarriage. Within weeks, Cleopatra was back in her hometown, grand, gorgeous Alexandria, a city that made room look positively provincial. Big, serious questions loomed on the horizon, questions to do with her alliances to Rome, her kingdom's continued survival, and her own. Rome would be back in her life again eventually. But for now, Cleopatra had to do what she could to shore up her power on her own. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Cleopatra's first step was to deal with her remaining little brother, Ptolemy XIV. I'm 11! Who is also her husband, although he's older than 11 now. He's not 11! As queen of Egypt, Cleopatra was supposed to rule alongside a husband, preferably also a close relative, like really close, like her brother, to keep the line pure. But 
Cleopatra knew how this went. She'd been, quote-unquote, married to her other little brother, Ptolemy XIII, when she'd first met Caesar. They were supposed to rule together, but their power struggle had plunged Egypt into civil war. When Caesar had settled that war in Cleopatra's favor, he'd made Ptolemy XIV her consort. He'd been only 11 then, but now he was 17, I guess. The numbers are wonky. Old enough to want some power for himself. If he wasn't a threat to her rule now, he soon would be. So one of the first things Cleopatra did when she got back to Alexandria was have Ptolemy XIV murdered. He was dead by end of summer, probably poisoned. Some sources say it was aconite. And if you want to know more about aconite, you know where to look. Where do they look, Jenny? Locusta the Poisoner. Mm Mm-hmm. If you don't know about Aconite, you should definitely check out Locusta the Poisoner, which is one of our episodes where we talk about ancient world poison. It's fascinating. That's why I'm not going into Aconite here, because we already talked about it. We did. And this is my warning. If somebody ever makes you blueberry pancakes, don't trust them. Don't trust the pancakes. Unless they're chocolate chip. Even then, even then, (laughs) I would be wary of any and all pancakes that you do not have a taster try first, especially if Jen makes them for you. Why would I make pancakes when I could have someone make them for me? Well, right. I mean, the severed head of crosses doesn't have hands to make pancakes with, so. (laughs) Because the Egyptian public expected their queen to rule with a male consort, she raised her son, Caesarion, to the throne. He was three years old and, for the time being, not a threat. Cleopatra had reset the clock on having to share power. And I think this is actually really interesting, Jen, because this is kind of a problem sometimes for women who take power on behalf of young sons. You know, we saw Agrippina the Younger deal with this with Nero. Exactly. And, you know, it's just a temporary measure because eventually your young son is going to hit their majority and they're not going to want mom around anymore necessarily. Even if you are sleeping with them, Agrippina, we're side-eyeing you right now. Right, in the litter or not in the litter. Just listen to listen to Ducks Femina for an in-depth discussion about whether Nero and Agrippina were having sex in a litter. Definitely not in the litter. <laughs> this is the kind of serious academic question we get into. And then Cleopatra threw herself energetically into reminding her people exactly who the queen was, because there could be no mistake who the queen was here, people. Right. We don't want anyone forgetting who the queen was. The summer of 44 BC was, for Cleopatra, a summer of festivals. She stepped back into the ritual role she'd embraced at the very beginning of her reign, before her civil war. This role, drawing on her gift of spectacle to throw lavish celebrations of religious holidays, both cemented her presence as a populace and made her highly visible as a goddess and leader to the Egyptian public. Throughout the summer of 44 BC, Cleopatra presided over the summer fertility rites that always came with the flooding of the Nile, often dressed as the goddess Isis, a deity she was strongly associated with. I just want to stop for a minute because I found something interesting when I was doing some research on Dionysus in the early folklore of the Mediterranean and wider regions. And most things actually had their new year beginning when the Nile flooded because it goes back to Egypt. And when was that? It was in the summer. So instead of having your new year begin like we traditionally do now in January, it actually began in the summer because that was their season when everything sort of returned and it would be a renewed life. And it all goes back to the Nile. Fascinating. She also embarked on an ambitious public works campaign, overseeing the construction of several elaborate temples. One, the Temple of Dendera, was associated with her son, Caesarion. It showed Caesarion burning incense for the gods Osiris, Isis, and Horus, while Cleopatra appeared in full Isis regalia behind him, shaking a holy rattle. Cleopatra also made plans to construct an enormous public building, the Caesarium, to honor Julius Caesar. Not to be confused with her son, Caesarion, it's the Caesarium. With an M. U-M, not O-N. That's right. Different, whole different thing. One is a building, one is a person. (laughs) One is a salad. No, no salad, no. Not a salad. We've established this. 
I mean, it is a delicious salad. Chicken Caesar salad is one of my favorites. Julius Caesar isn't a salad, even if the salad is delicious. Can we just establish this fact? I can debate this, but then he'll appear and we don't have time for that. I mean, I think we left the door open, didn't we? We left the door open, but we haven't even got to the bit about Mark Antony and Cleopatra meeting. And you know he's going to have shit to say about that. He refused. Okay, he refused to come to our rehearsal the other night. Refused. Flat out refused. He was like, Julius Caesar doesn't do rehearsals. Right. And we were just like, all right, Julius Caesar, you know what? We had booze here. We were going to have a good time. But you know what? We're not going to. We had a whole amphora of the best flow. Learning I could find, which is, you know, barefoot wine that I, I got from the, the off license, but it could be Florian. <laughs> it was two buck chuck, really, let's be honest. Actually, it's four buck chuck now. <laughs> if only that was enough to tempt him. Yeah, we always have the cheapest ass wine. I mean, sometimes it's about quantity, guys. <laughs> sometimes it's about what can I fill my giant crater with? What can I fill my war elephant stomach with? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, Cleopatra had also made plans to construct an enormous public building, the Caesarium, to honor Julius Caesar. The building was positioned right by the harbor with a magnificent view of the sea. It would ultimately encompass an entire neighborhood, complete with boardwalks, courts, groves of trees, porticos, gardens, libraries, and an endless array of priceless art that was probably mostly looted from conquered communities. Cleopatra moved the twin obelisks, now known as Cleopatra's Needles, created more than 1,200 years before she was born, from Heliopolis to decorate this building. The Caesarium wasn't completed in Cleopatra's lifetime, but its construction began in that busy, fever year after Caesar's death. Cleopatra also led an intellectual revival in Alexandria in the months after Caesar's death. Alexandria was home to the Great Library of Alexandria and its sister institution, the museum. In these buildings, the world's most eminent scholars were given three square meals and a free place to live, with all the world's knowledge and a community of other leading multidisciplinary thinkers at their fingertips, and the Ptolemies were their one and only patron. I mean, Jenny, that's clearly where we belong. Are they still taking applications for residencies or what? I mean, did you hear about the fire? Multiple fires. This is why we can't have nice things. It's Julius Caesar's fault, obviously. Always. Constantly. So, like Julius Caesar, Cleopatra had a brilliant, intellectually curious mind. In the months after Caesar's death, she surrounded herself with the Mediterranean world's preeminent thinkers in philosophy, oratory, medicine, science, literature, and astronomy, and pursued her own interest in these topics, possibly as just one of the many refuges from grief. It's tough to find Cleopatra's scholarship in Western sources because later propaganda distorted her image and worked really hard to erase anything positive about her. But interestingly, Cleopatra appears in some Arab sources as a notable scholar. I had a hard time finding, like, direct original sources on this, but Stacey Schiff, in her book Cleopatra, A Life, mentions that Cleopatra appears as a respected scholar in the Talmud with an interest in science and medicine. There are even stories that Cleopatra oversaw surgical experiments on female prisoners to determine when a fetus became an embryo. Yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense to me. She's just probably had this miscarriage. She's the divine Cleopatra. And there might be a part of her that's curious about what happened. First off, this is clearly extremely ethically dubious. Like, can we just get that out? <laughs> yeah, this is a horrible, horrid thing to do to anyone. And we do not approve. Not okay, Cleopatra. We disapprove strongly. Drawing that line in the sand, not okay. Apparently this line needs to be drawn. It needs to aggressively be drawn, but from a the insatiable need to know why this thing has happened to this divine person. I bet she was dealing with some serious postpartum. Well, I don't know if that's what she was dealing with. I bet she had an insatiable 
grief here. She's lost Caesar. She's lost the second child that they were going to have together. There has to be something inside of her at this point in time that is probably really, really broken. I don't want to label it because we can't label people who lived thousands of years ago. It's possible she had post-miscarriage depression as well as her grief for the loss of Caesar and this life that she thought she was building in Rome. Like all of these things coupled together could have maybe explained where this weird fascination came from. Again, not okay. And I'm not saying that postpartum depression leads you naturally to want to conduct experiments on people because that's horrible. Not saying that. That is not where we're going. (laughs) We're just saying her headspace was probably not where it would have been. And there are many mitigating factors that coupled together may explain this strange turn of events we're seeing. It was just such a random fact that I found and Jen kind of brought it together for me when we were talking about it because I was just like, this is just totally random. And Jen was like, well, no, I bet it totally had to do with her miscarriage and also like she's a goddess on earth and she probably believes that hype or at least partially believes that hype you know so what does it mean when a goddess on earth miscarries how can this even happen And remember, she was in the process of making Caesar the son of Venus and being this deified leader. And he's just been assassinated. Like, her entire world has been shook. It's like her entire concept of herself and of Caesar as deities, which, I mean, maybe they just sort of didn't believe that and they were cynically manipulating public belief in that area. I mean, I think it's a bit of both. I think it was a bit of both. Like, I think at least partially they really did believe their own hype in that area. It's totally possible. And it just, it was one of those things that clicked in my head. Oh, she's out actually gone through quite a lot. She's had a really shit year. This is only a year later. Right. Not to say that if you have a shit year, you should perform Dr. Mengele-style experiments on people. We've all had shit years. Both Jenny and I have suffered with different mental illnesses and things like that in the past, and neither of us have ever gone down this route or would. Somehow we managed to get through it without without pulling this shit. Cleopatra, what are you doing? Well, Cleopatra needed like some talk space or better help therapy, clearly. This is a point where you start seeing your friend doing stuff like this, and you're like, you know, I think you're in a really dark mental place right now. And I think you should talk to a professional. Yeah, I think like just our normal like chat sessions over the wine and opium that we've been smoking are not cutting it. (laughs) Because Cleopatra definitely smoked opium, guys. Probably she did. Yeah. (laughs) Just I did not do the primary research. I'm just saying stuff. I'm just Crassus's head repeating the rumors. (laughs) I mean, look, nobody's holding Crassus's head accountable for anything in this podcast. Let's be real. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's all on me. Look what look at the partner I have to work with here. Jen peaced out early and now I have a severed head. Boo. Stop it, crosses his head. You're creeping me out. <laughs> I'm not creeping you out. You just can't handle my eyeliner game. It's so fierce. That's true. I can't. I can't even look at it. It's too fierce. (laughs) Interestingly, around Shakespeare's time, the 1500s, early modern English writers often cited a now lost book of Cleopatra, reputed to contain Cleopatra's own writings and discoveries on topics such as natural science, natural history, surgery, medicine, and cosmetics. Lots of people in this time period cited the Book of Cleopatra as an authoritative source, including a physician, an expert on insects, and a surgeon. And I just, I get so angry right now because we have plenty of the elders, natural history, but we don't have the Book of Cleopatra. First off, I would love to get her makeup tips. Yeah, number one. Number two, it's like Agrippina's commentaries or whatever it was that she was keeping. Like, we don't have those either. 
Agrippina's autobiography. We don't have that. It just makes me so angry because we don't have enough sources from women's mouths of what their life was like. And these were two massive figures of the ancient world. Well, it's just a bunch of dudes deciding that women don't have a voice. Only dudes' voices matter. I'm not angry. I'm not about to chew the furniture. I'm fine. We're okay. It's all good. It's fine. It's unbecoming for ladies to get angry. The world is burning. It's a giant tire fire. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Let's read this paragraph. So one of the things attributed to the book of Cleopatra was a cure for baldness, a recipe for a paste made from flies, ground up mice, horse's teeth, and bear grease, which was to be rubbed on the balding scalp until it sprouts like a chia pet. I mean, I just have to ask, was she putting this on Julius Caesar's head? And did she know that this actually did not improve baldness and it was just an excuse to put gross stuff on Caesar's head? Crickets. <laughs> well, I wasn't asking Caesar, Jen. I was I was asking you what you thought. Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah, she was. And then after she took it off, she was like, look, it's growing back. It's so lush and thick, Caesar. Oh, honey, I think it's actually working. Like, look, I think I see a few more hairs. <laughs> I mean, they didn't have, like, proper mirrors. No. I mean, how's he going to know? Like, he's just taking her word for it. Absolutely. Some of this information, especially the info about the shady experiments, may be untrue or exaggerated or written to demonize Cleopatra. We don't know. But what we do know is that in Alexandria, Cleopatra had the most learned scholars in the known world from the Library of Alexandria as her tutors and dinner companions. She was intensely intellectual, educated, and curious about everything. And she was raised to see herself as a living goddess on Earth who may well have believed that she could do anything to anybody. So I don't find these claims to be totally off the wall here. So for the next year or so, while Rome was sorting itself out, Cleopatra kept busy, presiding over festivals in her elaborate Isis gear, leading an intellectual revival, building lavish temples, conducting very ethically dubious experiments, and murdering her little brother. You know, that is one bujo that I do not want to get my hands on. Or do you? Or do I? But everything wasn't all coming up Cleopatra all the time. A bad spring growing season resulted in widespread famine. Inflation forced Cleopatra to devalue her currency again. She'd done this once before when Caesar demanded she pay off all her father's debts to Rome, despite the fact that she had just borne him a son and, you know, he had an excellent 13-month honeymoon in her love shack palace. But hey, Caesar, not cool. And on top of all this, there was a breakout of bubonic plague. Then, in the midst of all of this, in 43 BC, about a year after Caesar's death, just one year, Rome finally came knocking. The first Roman to appear on Cleopatra's doorstep was Dolabella. You remember Dolabella, right, Jen? Refresh my memory. So we first met Dolabella in our last episode on Fulvia. He was Antony's former friend who'd slept with Antony's wife and then started a gang war with Mark Antony over debt policy, which Antony won because he was married to Fulvia, who was the original gangster of ancient Rome. We talk about that in our last episode. But now, over in Rome, Dolabella was involved in the power struggles between the Caesarian faction, Caesar's supporters, and the Liberators, those allied with Caesar's assassins. Dolabella was a Caesarian, and when he sent a message to Cleopatra asking for help, she sent him the four legions Caesar had originally left in Alexandria for her protection after the Alexandrian War. In return, she got Dolabella to promise that once he was in control, he'd recognize Caesarian as the rightful ruler of Egypt. Cleopatra was in a bind here. She'd gotten her kingdom through Roman support, first from Pompey and then from Caesar. Her own army had been severely weakened in the Alexandrian War. Most of her military strength was in Roman troops Caesar had left her, which she'd now just sent 
sent to Dolabella. Cleopatra's continued rule depended on allying herself with Rome, but at the moment, there was no Rome. There was only a seething mass of competing factions, all of which would no doubt demand grain, money, ships, and troops from her. No matter who she chose to back, the cost would doubtless be ruinous, and choosing the wrong one would seal her own downfall. It seems that Cleopatra would have strongly preferred to back people from the Caesarian faction. Makes sense. But if the assassin side came knocking, she couldn't afford to be too picky. She had to weigh her options carefully because it was entirely possible Caesar's assassins would win. And if they did, she had to find a way to work with them if she wanted to keep her kingdom. Cleopatra's four legions never made it to Dolabella. They were intercepted by Cassius, one of the assassins. He turned around and demanded Cleopatra send him even more aid. And Cleopatra made her excuses. I'm sorry, you know, Cassius, the plague, there's been a plague, there's been a famine. I am all tapped out over here, Cassius, sorry. Meanwhile... Behind Cassius's back, she was scrounging together more troops for Dolabella, but her own general in Cyprus disobeyed her, dispatching those troops to Cassius instead. Cassius defeated Dolabella in July of 43. Not long after that, Caesar's assassin Brutus faced his final showdown against Mark Antony and Octavian. This time, it was Mark Antony and Octavian who sent a message to Cleopatra asking for troops and ships. Cleopatra enthusiastically responded, raising ships and supplies in a time of famine and then leading the flotilla herself to make sure everything got there safely. When he heard, Cassius was so enraged that he began to plan a full-on invasion of Egypt. And this would have been a disaster for Cleopatra because her country really was weakened by plague and Famine. It wasn't just an excuse. Cassius mobilized to wrest Egypt from her control, only to be pulled away by an urgent missive from Brutus to come and help him fight Octavian and Antony. So Cleopatra acted fast, commanding her flagship at the head of a fleet bound for Antony and Octavian. But a sudden storm battered her ships, sinking most of her fleet. Cleopatra took sick at sea and barely made it home. While a few ancient writers treat this as another excuse, an ally of Cassius who was waiting to ambush Cleopatra reported seeing wreckage and corpses from her fleet floating in the water. So Cleopatra dragged her carcass home, having used up most of her troops and ships and endangered her health and secured no new Roman allies for her costly and dangerous efforts. It was a massive fail. Massive fail! Julius Caesar would like to remind the living goddess Cleopatra... Hold up! Julius Caesar has something to say, everyone! Stop what you're doing and listen. As I was saying... (laughs) Julius Caesar would like to remind the living goddess Cleopatra that you do not get in a ship and go to these clowns. These clowns come to you and worship at your feet. You are Cleo-fucking-patra. Thank you, Julius Caesar. And especially, my darling Cleopatra, do not get in a ship from Mark Antony. He can't count past 12. (laughs) Really? (laughs) This explains so much about Mark Antony. (laughs) I mean, Julius Caesar, aren't you proud of her right now? She's doing so much. I am immensely proud of her and of the determination that she has to see her people properly supported by whoever rules in Rome. Although, we both know Cleopatra, the only side to ever support was the Caesarians. But that's fine. She has to do what she has to do, listen. Yes, I understand you must play the odds, as they say. But do not go to them. They come to you. And if they come to you and you do not like the manner in which they speak to you, kill them all. I will pass that on to Cleopatra. I'll make sure she gets the message. All right, I'm back now, guys. (laughs) So, Jen, Julius Caesar says Mark Antony can't count past 12. (laughs) I mean, Mark Antony is a war elf and this doesn't surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I die. I am cracking up. (laughs) 
we just refer to him now as Mark? Can't count past 12, Anthony. <laughs> I think that this is definitely going to come up again. I suspect it will. I mean, I don't think finances were his strong suit, considering he was bankrupt before his age of majority and had to just chill out in Athens to get away from his creditors. So, you know. Wait till you see how things devolve in Parthia. It does make sense. We'll get into this. But anyway, for Cleopatra, opportunity comes in threes. And for most of us, it does. Because the third time Rome came knocking in 42 BC, two years after Julius Caesar's assassination, only two years, it was Mark Antony who showed up by himself. And this time, Cleopatra made the most of the opportunity. So before we move ahead with what happened there, let's just pause for a minute and take a look at what Antony was up to leading up to this point. Because it's always super amusing to just pause for a minute and see what Mark Antony is doing. I mean, we know he's vomiting. Well, we know that. That's just a given. We know he's either completely trashed or has a screaming hangover and he's probably disgorging his stomach contents on something or someone. And within the last two years, he's had another 12 children, but he can't count that many, so it's fine. Right, and they're all named Antonia. Or Antonius. <laughs> he also named his ships the Antonia. Like, wait till we get to that part. Because Mark Antony, much like a dog that needs to pee on things to let you know that it now owns it, that is how he owned everything. It might just be that Mark Antony literally cannot think of a different name. No, why would you think of a different name when it's the best possible name? Come on, Jenny. I know, you could literally just name everything Antonia or Antonius and then move on from there. Your cats, your dog, your fish, your goldfish, your children. Listen, Julius Caesar's password is Venus the Unconquered, and Mark Antony names everything some variation of his name. <laughs> we figured out the ancient world. Great, we don't need to have this podcast anymore. Bye, guys. Peace out. <laughs> Season four, episode two. <laughs> this is it. We're calling it quits on ancient history, fangirl. We've made it like 18 months or something. Yeah, we're done. There's nothing else in the world we need to cover. We've said it all. It was always going to come to this point. We figured out everything we need to know. So about a year after Julius Caesar's assassination, in 43 BC, Mark Antony had joined up with Octavian, Caesar's 18-year-old heir, and a third guy named Lepidus, who'd been one of Caesar's right-hand men. The three men formed the Second Triumvirate, an alliance with the goal of seizing power in Rome and punishing anyone who'd taken part in Caesar's assassination. After defeating Cassius and Brutus, the three triumvirs rolled back into Rome and enacted bloody, brutal prescriptions. We tell the whole story of that in Fulvia, original gangster of ancient Rome. If you haven't listened to that, I seriously don't know what you're doing with your life. Just go right now. You'll be so enriched. And then, you know, you don't have to listen to us talk about it anymore. Right. It would stop everything and listen to that episode and then come back. We'll be here. Yeah. After that, the three triumvirs divided up Rome's territories for themselves. Lepidus got sidelined hard. So hard. Oh, Lepidus. He got sidelined so hard that he had a concussion. Octavian went back to Rome to handle land redistribution to the troops and came into epic conflict with Fulvia, who was ruling Rome while Antony was gone. Again, if you haven't listened to Fulvia, original gangster of ancient Rome, I don't even know what to do say to you at this point. I don't either. You've rendered us both speechless. You've rendered Julius Caesar speechless. I think he would have been a Fulvia fan. Julius Caesar, are you a Fulvia fan? Julius Caesar deeply admires and respects the lady Fulvia and also banged her. Really? I think she banged you. 
Julius Caesar does not know of which you speak. Banging only goes one way. That is a deeply <laughs> Roman sentiment, and that is so untrue. <laughs> yup. Of course, an ancient Roman would say that also Julius Caesar doesn't do oral, and he thinks it only goes one way. I mean, he did have a magic D. I guess that makes up for a lot. Again, we don't know that Julius Caesar actually banged Fulvia, but... Don't trust anything that dude says. I mean, is he saying it to get even with Antony, who was married to Fulvia? We don't know. He's been in a surly mood ever since we started this arc. He's not the main character anymore. Of course he's in a surly mood. And also, his, like, best friend and his best babe got together, and they're the epic love story. The epic love story isn't Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. It was, though. He got his time. But Shakespeare didn't write it that way. Oh, man, that must grate on him. Oh, you know it does. <laughs> Can we move on? We can, like, stay on topic. <laughs> One thing all the triumvirs had in common at this point was that they all needed money. Desperately, they were broke. They have troops to pay. They all made lavish promises to these troops. And both the triumvirs who mattered, Octavian and Antony, were eyeing each other suspiciously, just waiting for the other one to twitch, even slightly toward an attempt at total domination. I mean, neither one of them was worried about Lepidus, right? <laughs> I know, but Lepidus is like, what about me? I might twitch towards total domination. No, you won't, Lepidus. Sit down. Nobody believes that. I'm twitching right now. Twitch, twitch, twitch. Oh my God. Does everyone ignore Lepidus? He's twitching in the corner. I'm going to dominate. So let's just go somewhere else where Lepidus isn't because he keeps talking about domination. Oh, hamburgers. <laughs> See, this is why nobody takes Lepidus seriously because of his goofy catchphrases. Because he's channeling butters from South Park. Nobody takes Professor Chaos seriously. It's butters. Now I'm just going to picture butters from South Park as Professor Chaos whenever we talk about Lepidus. <laughs> anyway, I'm literally crying. Anyway, right now. Antony and Octavian had big issues. They were both super concerned with keeping their troops paid and loyal. Antony's job on paper at this point was reorganizing Rome's eastern provinces so that they could be stable and provide Rome with income and generally not cause the empire or whatever this was at this point. It's not quite the empire yet. It's not the Republic. It's not the consulship of Julius and Caesar anymore. No, it's the second triumvirate, except really Lepidus is just being butters in the corner. <laughs> so it's really just two guys. I feel like I want to do an episode on Lepidus now. I feel so bad for him. <laughs> we could do a mini-sode on him. Yeah, let's do a mini-sode on Lepidus. You know what, Jen? I assign you that task. Your job, should you choose to accept it, is to do a mini-sode on Lepidus. Aye, aye, Captain. Do it. So anyway... It was Antony's job to keep the eastern provinces stable so that they could give Rome some money and not collapse anything any further. This kind of job sounds like a perfect one for a war elephant. This is a job for <laughs> Mark can't count past 12 Antony. <laughs> but Mark Antony's other motive in touring the eastern provinces was rearranging power structures to his benefit and extorting funds from Asian communities for his troops and for a very expensive plan he had to invade and conquer Parthia. Because nothing ever goes wrong when you visit Parthia, does it, Crassus? <laughs> no. <laughs> Parthia was a kingdom located roughly where northeastern Iran is today. It was a traditional enemy of Rome, and its people were very, very tough. 
They were horse archers in a volatile region used to dealing with violent incursions from nomadic tribes and organized kingdoms in all directions. Their territory was a death trap of burning deserts and razorback mountains where unprepared armies went to die. Eleven years ago, Rome's richest real estate magnate, Crassus, currently in this episode in severed head form, had tried to invade Parthia and got in his head handed to him literally. We have a bunch of rules, like ancient history fangirl rules to live by. And basically, if you just walk away from this podcast with a single rule, it's don't mess with the Parthians, kids. If we just leave you with one thing. And if you have a shirt, Fox, tell someone. And never take a freelance gig from the Carthaginians. I mean, as a freelancer, I feel passionately about freelance rights. And you should definitely never work for the Carthaginians. They're the worst clients. So uh, those three things. And also don't eat the Pontic ducks. They're poison. Okay, so fourth, those are four things. But the most important one is the Parthians. Right, do not mess with the Parthians. Although maybe the shirt fox is slightly more important. If you have a shirt fox, I'm serious, tell someone. Don't just leave it in there. So there are reasons why people would want to put a shirt fox in their shirt, and there are reasons why people would want to invade Parthia. And one of the reasons, in fact, the biggest reason, is that Parthia was very rich. And also, because it was so difficult an enemy, it would have brought a lot of glory to whoever defeated it. So Mark Antony knew that if he could defeat Parthia and make it a Roman province under his control, naturally, he'd rename it Antonia. Or Antonia. I feel like if Mark Antony was in Scientist, all the elements he discovered would be Antonium. He could, trying to get through this paragraph, he could enrich himself massively if he invaded Parthia, strengthen his army, and get a large public relations boost over Octavian, because that's really what this is about, right? As a war hero and the man who avenged the death of Crassus, all of these things would help him ensure that when Octavian did try to edge him out of power, which was basically inevitable, he wouldn't succeed. BC, while Octavian was clashing with Fulvia over troop resettlements in Rome, Cleopatra was presiding over festivals, conducting shady murder experiments, and tossing the dice with regard to Roman alliances. And Lepidus was off doing whatever Lepidus does. Nobody cared. He was definitely General Chaos, the ancient world version of Professor Chaos. He's over there in his corner (laughs) muttering to himself. (laughs) So Antony embarked on a tour of the eastern provinces to drum up cash and reorganize dynasties. But also, because this was Mark Antony here, his primary purpose in all of this was to have a really good fucking time. How good a time, Jen? Oh, let me tell you how good a time he was going to have. He started in Athens, spending the winter there in 42 to 41 BC, because remember, it goes backwards because we're in BC. We're in the BCs, which means that the smaller the number, the closer we are to present day. Jen felt the need to bring this up in rehearsals. Guys, I've had a glass of wine, so I have to bring it up again. (laughs) Eventually that turns. Time moved back. Time moved back. Time moves backwards. Jeez. Severed head of Crassus is really, it's really performing well right now. Half a cup of Falernian and that's it. I mean, it just pours right out his neck and onto the table. (laughs) He just gets drunk on the jaw. (laughs) (laughs) Severed head of Crassus, you are gross. Like, I'm just going to say it. We're all thinking it. Anyway, let's continue with the story. So Antony had been to Athens before. He'd studied rhetoric there about 10 years ago, and he'd always liked Athens. Antony spent the winter basically goofing off, adopting Athenian dress, attending plays, competing at sports in the gymnasium, mostly naked. 100% naked. Definitely naked, because gymnasiums were all naked. Debating with philosophers, and of course... Naked. (laughs) (laughs) 
potentially. And of course, he was feasting and drinking on a truly epic scale. And the Greeks humored Antony. They, and all the other rulers in the eastern provinces really, knew that Antony was now a major power in the region. He was there to take money and rearrange dynasties to suit himself. And they had to be on his good side. The people of Athens showered Antony with feasts and gifts, all while tactfully asking for favors and special treatment. Right, because this is really the game here. This is totally the game here. Crowds of dancers, musicians, and actors thronged about Antony, eager to entertain him. When Antony left Athens and made his way toward Ephesus, he was preceded by a crowd of men dressed as satyrs with enormous erections, because that's what satyrs had. Giant boners. Giant raging agendas. And women dressed as mayonnaise the wild, frenzying female worshippers of Dionysus. Everywhere he went, Antony was proclaimed the new Dionysus, and he ate it right up. I mean, I just love this, Jen. Like, <laughs> can you just see it? Here comes the new Dionysus, bitches. <laughs> you can just see it. <laughs> Where are my mayonnaise at? <laughs> <laughs> And the thing about Dionysus, because that's the episode that I did the primary research on, is he literally was thronged by these wild, amazing women and these satyrs with giant erections. And you can see... Was there limb ripping involved in this? They didn't always frenzy and rip limbs. I mean, that was sort of reserved for people who didn't, like, accept Dionysus into their hearts and minds. But when they do frenzy and rip limbs, everyone knows who their god is, and it's Dionysus. Goddamn straight. Where are my mayonnaise at, bitches? Where are my mayonnaise at? I feel like that's just now the motto of my life. I need to put that on a t-shirt. I think we will put that on a t-shirt. Check our merch section. We're going to have that at some point. <laughs> none of this, okay, none of this aggrandizement stopped Antony from enacting crushing levies on all his new provinces. His usual ask was nine years worth of taxes to be paid up front in two years. And although he was supposed to be spending this money on troops and supplies, Antony often used it to just, you know, pay for his expensive parties and shower his followers followers with gifts, at one point bestowing an enormous mansion to a cook who made him a really good dinner. So I have to tell you this one story that just totally ties into Caesar's claim that Mark Antony can't count past 12. One ballsy orator after Antony levied 200,000 talents. And can we just stop a second? Because 20 talents was like millions of dollars in today's money if it was talents of gold. Yeah, we talked about this. We got really bent around the axle on this. We have no idea if it's gold or silver. And that makes a big difference, so... It makes a massive difference, but either way, it's a fortune. Right. An actual talent was supposed to be a human person's weight in money. So 200,000 talents is like an unimaginable sum of money. And it just kind of tells me that Mark Antony is making up numbers here. Oh, yeah. He's like, I'm just going to charge you a super bajillion talents. And then on top of that, I'm going to charge you another super bajillion talents. And this orator says, that's not actually a real number. Obviously, we don't have that much. And if you never got the first super bajillion talents, take it up with your corrupt administrators, not us. Which is, you know, kind of a mic drop. Antony liked this guy. He was said to love it when people gave it to him straight. So he called off the second super bajillion talent levy. Communities tried other ways to mitigate their Antony problem, too. For instance, everyone knew Mark Antony liked the ladies. No. Shocker. <laughs> he had a lot of big dick energy. Okay, Jen. <laughs> he did. He had a lot of wives and he had a lot of children. So many children. And I do feel like his, you know, whole political strategy was when he was active in the Senate was just taking it out and swinging it around and hitting people with it. It all makes sense now. I mean, what do you think a veto hammer is, Jen? <laughs> <laughs> 
It's all just a euphemism. <laughs> I think in Anthony's case, it wasn't even that good a euphemism. <laughs> I think that's what he called it in bed. <laughs> Do you want to see my veto hammer? <laughs> oh, yes, Anthony. I mean, if it's Marcellus, it's, do you want to see my raging anti-Caesar agenda? <laughs> I guess it's better than the horse palace. <laughs> so Plutarch has something to contribute to this conversation. Oh, has he put the flying ointment down? I doubt it. He tells us that rulers in the eastern provinces frequently offered Mark Antony knights with their wives in order to reduce the levies and get good terms in the redistribution of power. One woman, Glyphira, was thought to be his mistress during this time. She was competing with another claimant for the throne of Cappadocia. Antony picked the other claimant, which is just deeply disappointing, Antony. She waxed for you. Seriously? Yeah, I mean, the thing about Antony is Antony gonna Antony. Yeah, he certainly is gonna Antony. Veto hammer gonna veto hammer, okay? (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) putting the veto hammer back in the toga. Put it back, Antony, put it back. put it back. Not time for your big dick energy right now. Put that energy away. Antony basically fucked and drank and partied his way across Asia and Greece, levying enormous payments, drinking the entire open bar, sleeping with other men's wives, and thoroughly living up to his title as the new Dionysus. Hold up, everyone. Here comes the new Dionysus. (laughs) Get ready. Until in 41 BC, he got to Cilicia. Where there are definitely water slides. Antony is now settled in with his water slides, hanging out, and he decides that it's time to get serious about preparing for this whole Parthia thing. Not going to call it a war, an invasion, or something I should not be doing. It's a thing. We're just not putting a label on it, Jen. He's not calling it Antonia. (laughs) That's the only label he puts on things. (laughs) So Antony set himself up in Tarsus, an ancient city along a river in the mountainous region of Cilicia on the southeastern coast of Asia Minor. Then he sent a message to the ruler of his richest client kingdom and one that made all the other client kingdoms he'd been extorting look like kids' piggy banks to come over so that he could inform her that she was now going to be picking up his tab for the Parthian invasion. And that rich client kingdom was Ptolemaic Egypt. And its ruler was Cleo fucking Patra. Antony had kind of a beef with Cleopatra right now, actually. As far as he knew, she'd sent aid to Cassius. She'd also promised, but not delivered, a fleet of ships to him and Octavian. Where were her loyalties exactly? Just what was her deal? Anyway, could she be trusted or not? If Antony didn't think she could be trusted, he was totally willing to rearrange the power structure in her kingdom, too, and put someone more trustworthy on the throne. Antony sent a guy named Quintus Delius to bring Cleopatra the summons. Stacey Schiff, in her amazing book, Cleopatra, A Life, which we cannot stop talking about, calls him, quote, a man of acrobatic loyalties. According to her, he, quote, changed sides three times in the course of the Civil War, having leapt from Dolabella's camp to Cassius's to touch down temporarily in Mark Antony's. Delius was there to take Cleopatra's measure, to determine her loyalties, to figure out why she seemed to be half-assed in her support of Caesar's Avengers and what exactly her deal was already. So... We don't know what Delius was expecting. Maybe a grief-stricken queen still moping around about Caesar's death. Sigh. I mope. I weep. I shall never have that magic D again. I shall never see the like. My fallen angel. Swoon. So sad. Sad swoon. Julius Caesar has got to have a commentary on what we're doing right now. This is all I can hear. (laughs) I think he's clapping. Does he realize we're being sarcastic? Oh, that's a very rude gesture. (laughs) 
<laughs> Julius Caesar, you love us, whatever. So anyway, we aren't sure exactly what Cleopatra did to make such an impression on him. But we do know that when he met her, he was absolutely 100% not prepared for the reality of Cleo motherfucking Patra. Although she didn't actually fuck her mother. We have to just specify that because, you know, with the Ptolemies, you, you never know. Right, with the Ptolemies, you actually do have to specify. So Delius took one look at the Egyptian queen and goddess and knew Isis and said, Oh, Mark Antony's gonna love you. And you're gonna love him. Unlike Caesar, he does give oral. Oh, yeah. I mean, for the right reasons, for the right women. He didn't give it to all his wives. No, he didn't give it to Octavia, I'll tell you that much. You know he did to Fulvia. Oh, he had to do it with Fulvia. She, if you don't go down on Fulvia, she sends her mobs after you. I mean, that's what happened with Octavian. <laughs> There's a mob outside Fulvia's bedroom, and if they do not hear the appropriate cries of pleasure at the right time, I'm just saying, if Fulvia tells you to go down, you go the fuck down. <laughs> Otherwise, you might be barricaded in your house for five months <laughs> with an angry mob outside. And this, kids, is why we'll never be on anyone's college syllabus, like the History of Ancient Greece podcast. <laughs> oh, were we trying to do that? Like, was that a goal? At one point in time, it might have been. I was like, we'll do a history podcast and we can go for educational funding. And Jenny's like, no, we can't. I mean, I can already see how that's not going to work. Anyway, I'm getting back to, to Delius. Right, so let's talk about Delius. Delius, the acrobat, once again switched sides. Suddenly, he was Cleopatra's advisor on all things Mark Antony because he wanted her to succeed. He advised Cleopatra to get ready with a charm offensive and assured her that Antony was, quote, the most agreeable and humane of all commanders. The most agreeable and humane of commanders. Swoon. Swoon. Probably told her about the veto hammer. He probably did. He's like, let me tell you about Mark Antony's veto hammer. He's got his good points and his bad points. He likes to make up numbers. He has a really weird sense of humor. We're getting to that. Oh, God. Cleopatra heard Delia's out, and she decided to play it cool. She did not go running to Antony. Nope, she did not. She waited. Julius Caesar would approve. Goddamn right. She waited. Not exactly sure how long. Maybe weeks. Maybe months. The dates are fuzzy. While the letters and summonses from Antony piled up. Some writers suggest she was still judging the situation, but I think she was just trying to pull a boss move here. Totally. I think she was like, uh, living goddess. Check. I'm not traipsing all the way to Cilicia for nothing. Even if there are water slides. Even if that water slide goes through a shark tank like the one in Atlantis. I'm trying to tell you about how Cleopatra did not go to Antony until she was good and ready to go to Antony. And when she was ready, she put on her game face. And she went sailing off to Cilicia to meet Mark Antony in her luxury yacht flotilla like a fucking girl boss. If there was one thing Cleopatra excelled at, it was making an entrance. Six years ago, she'd appeared before Julius Caesar, dressed simply, sneaking through enemy lines, seizing the initiative, wrapped in burlap, just like he liked his ladies. Oh yeah, wrapped in a itchy fabric and very hot. Crafty and wrapped in burlap. <laughs> exactly. For Mark Antony, she took the opposite tack, rowing up the river to Tarsus in a gilded barge with purple sails and silver oars, reclining beneath a canopy, dressed like Venus in a priceless painting. You couldn't possibly miss her. She was fanned by young boys dressed as Eros, the god of erotic love. The most beautiful of her serving maids as Graces and Nereids sailed the ship, manning the rudders and trimming the sails. Clouds of expensive incest got clouds. I was, it sounded like I said incest. 
<laughs> insects. Really? Clouds of expensive incest. It is the Ptolemies. I mean, it was with the most expensive person in the realm. They didn't always do incest, Jen, but when they did, it was expensive incest. <laughs> oh my God. We can't get through this episode. Clouds of expensive incense, not incest, and not insects. Incense beguiled the crowds that thronged at the riverbanks to see her. When Cleopatra's luxury yacht flotilla arrived at Tarsus, Mark Antony was in a large public building hearing petitions. Rumors of Cleopatra's arrival traveled so swiftly and were so disruptive that just about the entire population of Tarsus dropped what they were doing and ran down the docks to catch sight of her, including everyone in the public building who'd been waiting on favors from Antony. You can just see him like... <laughs> Where my man at's at? Where's everyone going? <laughs> where my man at's at? What's going on? Am I not the new Dionysus? What? What? The veto hammer just got really sad. So poor Antony's hall quickly began to empty out until he was left all alone in this big echoing place. And eventually he was like, oh, I guess I have to get up and walk somewhere with my body and see what's going on. So he went trailing outside after the crowd and a message came to him soon after. Quote, Venus has come to revel with Bacchus for the good of Asia. Swoon. How about that for an opening line? Oh, my God. It's like she just read the Antony playbook and was like, hi, I'm going to just stroke that veto hammer right now. It was all sad. Well, that's how you do it. You make it sad and then you make it happy. Exactly. Antony invited Cleopatra to join him for dinner. But Cleo pulled another power move and said, "Uh uh-uh. Oh, no, you don't do the inviting. I do the inviting. Antony, being a good sport and all, acquiesced. When night fell, he went down to the riverbank at the appointed time, and what he saw struck him absolutely silent, which I imagine was hard to do. Cleopatra had set up an impromptu banquet hall along the banks of the river. A glittering constellation of lamps had been threaded in the trees above, shining down on twelve separate outdoor banquet halls, separated by luxurious purple tapestries shot through with golden thread. Each hall was furnished with couches, gilded in gold and silver, and richly upholstered. Every table groaned with the most sumptuous food and stunning goblets and plates of gold encrusted with priceless gems. No doubt Cleopatra was the most astonishing sight of all, dripping with priceless jewelry, resplendent as a goddess. We imagine she gave Antony a self-effacing smile. Oh, this? This is just some basic thing I threw together at the last minute. You know, I am traveling. This is my fresh off a flotilla face. (laughs) (laughs) So according to Appian, as soon as Antony managed to just pick his jaw up off the floor, he immediately brought up his issues with Cleopatra. Why does she send those troops to Cassius? And why didn't she send those promised ships to him and Octavian that one time? Was she with the Caesareans or not? And Cleo answered each of his questions smoothly, with zero apologies. Of course she was a cesarean. She had born his son, hadn't she? She came to Rome to help Caesar make Rome the best Rome it could possibly be. I mean, come on. She'd sent her last four legions to Dolabella the minute he'd asked, and those troops that went to Cassius had been sent against her orders by a rebellious general. And she'd tried to deliver Antony's ships to him personally, risking her life and limb. The weather just hadn't cooperated. Cleopatra was a gracious host, despite the fact that Antony clearly did not know how to behave or treat a living goddess. 
So once they've cleared the air and had that very serious conversation about Cleo's loyalties, Cleo entertained Antony and his friends in high style, sending her guests home with lavish gifts, all of the gem-encrusted jewels, plates, and even the furniture that they've been admiring all night. I mean, oh, can you imagine if any of that was still around? I have a small apartment in Brooklyn, and this is kind of my nightmare. People sending me home with massive furniture. Oh, please give it to me. Oh my God. Can you imagine? It's probably like worth more than my flat, which I don't own, but I still imagine it's worth more than. I bet we could sell it on eBay and make a killing. I'm not going to sell it on eBay. I'm going to sell it like a Christie's, the auction house. Or sell it to the Met. Oh my God. Yes. I don't know where I'm going to put that giant Ptolemaic sofa until I find a buyer for it, but I'll take it. I mean, we'll figure it out. Your dad has a house in Vermont. He hates it when I bring stuff up there to store, but I do it a lot. Hi, Dad. He's definitely listening to this right now. Dad, if we ever get a Ptolemaic sofa for the podcast, I'm bringing it up and you're just going to have to deal. I love you. (laughs) I mean, if you get a Ptolemaic sofa, like what an amazing thing. I know it's for the podcast, dad. My dad's a big podcast supporter. He is. Lavish generosity, but make no mistake. This was all a power move. Cleopatra knew she was competing with all the other monarchs of the East who'd been drowning Antony in wine and riches and sex for months and proclaiming him the new Dionysus, which was a nickname that he really, really liked. She had to make the best impression of them all. Before they left, Cleopatra invited her guests back tomorrow, promising she'd, you know, make an effort this time. And the second night, Antony and his lieutenants showed up to a banquet tent, knee-deep in rose petals. Stacy Schiff tells us that the perfume must have been overpowering in the heat of Tarsus. And at the end of that night, Cleo sent her guests off with even more lavish gifts. Litters and litter bearers, fabulous horses outfitted in gold trappings, the customary very large furniture and ostentatious plateware that you're going to have to put in your dad's basement or attic until you find a buyer for it, and a single Ethiopian slave each carrying a torch to help her guests get home. And then I guess just live there. Not cool, Cleo. Although I guess you could just give the slave his freedom and say, all right, you can go now. Yeah, maybe they did. Maybe they were like, cool, thanks very much for guiding me home. You're free now. Go enjoy your life. That'd be great. That is the ending that I would like to imagine, but doubt happened. I don't think that ever happened because it's the ancient world and people were trash. Yep. So the night after, it was Antony's turn to entertain Cleopatra. Antony was not necessarily a slouch in this area. He was a notorious hedonist whose tastes ran very, very rich. And he just spent the past few months extorting unimaginable wealth out of his provinces. He had the resources and expensive taste to throw a fucking blockbuster party. But did he? Did he? He should have had this, right? He did not have this. Maybe he was just hungover or maybe he was drunk on rose petals. We don't know. Fermented rose petals. Antony did not have this. Because here's the thing. Never try to out Ptolemy a Ptolemy when it comes to hosting a dinner party. When Cleopatra arrived at Antony's dinner, she was less than impressed. And Antony busted out the self-deprecating humor. He was, as Plutarch emerges from his fever dream, to assure us, quote, first to rail at the meagerness and rusticity of his own arrangements. Cleopatra immediately joined in making fun of him, quote, without restraint and boldly. As she'd done with Caesar, Cleopatra gauged her audience and adjusted her charm offensive accordingly. Plutarch tells us that Cleopatra noticed Antony's rough, ribald, soldierly humor decidedly 
more down-to-earth than Caesar, and adopted a similar informal and even ribald humor herself. Cleopatra turned on a dime to transform herself from the sophisticated, wealthy intellectual queen and goddess into the quintessential cool girl, just one of the guys, a woman who could arm wrestle, crack dirty jokes, and play pranks with the best of them. No doubt the minute she started doing this, it was her entourage's turn to pick their jaws up off the floor. Mark Antony, simple soul that he was, didn't stand a chance. Appian tells us that Antony was, quote, amazed at Cleopatra's wit as well as her good looks and became her captive even though he was 40 years of age. At this point in time, Cleopatra was 28. So, I mean, 40-year-old guy going for a woman over a decade younger than him. This never happens. Appian, why are you so surprised? Can't imagine what he sees in her. Although, let's be honest, she's almost age-appropriate. For the ancient world, she really is age-appropriate. Antony stuck around Tarsus with Cleopatra for a couple more weeks. And in that time, he completely lost interest in, you know, plundering the eastern provinces or fucking his way across Asia. Instead, he took up a new hobby, having people killed on Cleopatra's behalf. It's almost like in her bujo, she had a list. Well, much like the Triumvirs and Sulla... She had a list. Cleopatra still had a couple of loose ends floating around. One of those was Arsinoe, her sister. Arsinoe was a few years younger than Cleopatra, about six years ago, when civil war erupted in Egypt between Cleopatra and her brother, Ptolemy XIII, in 47 BC. Arsinoe had deserted Cleopatra and tried to seize the crown of Egypt for herself. She'd lost She was facing Julius fucking Caesar, after all, and she definitely made him break out in a sweat. And she was a 15-year-old girl, so, you know, that was pretty badass. But the thing is, she still lost. Caesar hauled Arsinoe back to Rome, forced her to walk in a triumph, in chains, behind a burning replica of the lighthouse at Pharos. And then, at the request of the Roman public, which sympathized with Arsinoe, spared her life, sending her to live at the Temple of Ephesus in Greece. But Arsinoe hadn't gone quietly into obscurity. She spent the next six years plotting against Cleopatra, even getting the priests in the temple and a few other allies to declare her the real queen of Egypt, which is just fighting words. At Cleopatra's request, Antony sent soldiers to haul Arsinoe out of her temple and murder her on the temple steps. Other people Antony had murdered included that disobeying general who'd sent Cleopatra's troops to Cassius. I mean, he was just asking for it, too. Totally. And someone wandering around Asia claiming to be Ptolemy XIII. And the funny thing is, he might actually have been, because theoretically, Ptolemy XIII had drowned in the Nile at the end of the Alexandrian War, but his body had never been found, so there was kind of an opening there. I mean, but if that was me, I probably wouldn't be telling people. I wouldn't be advertising until I had a real good army at my side. That's true, so maybe not. It's obvious that sparks flew the moment Antony and Cleopatra met under the lights in the trees at the lavish banquet in Tarsus. But it's actually possible Antony and Cleopatra had met before. Antony worked closely with Julius Caesar, and they could have met while Cleopatra was visiting Rome in 45 and 44 BC. Appian tells us that Antony had in fact fallen in love with Cleopatra at first sight about 14 years ago, when she was about 14 years old, because that makes sense. It's the fucking ancient world. Yeah, that makes total sense. Antony had been serving under Cabinius then, and he'd helped to put her dad, Elites, the flute monster, back on the Egyptian throne. And we talk about that in Cleopatra in The King of Rome. So was this a love match, Jen, or was this a hard-headed political union? 
It's a tough one. I mean, I feel like for Antony, <laughs> the veto hammer swings one way. For Mark Antony, he's clearly lost his head. And I think Cleopatra's clearly being very calculating, at least at first. Absolutely. Did she maybe grow to love him? Possibly. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's not necessarily mutually exclusive, but these two needed each other. Antony needed Cleopatra's money and support, possibly even more than Caesar had all those years ago. And Cleopatra definitely needed another Roman protector. Well, I think definitely more than Caesar had, because we talk about Mark Antony a lot and like got a lot of sympathy for Mark Antony but I do think he was Caesar's hammer he was Caesar's war elephant and he was great when you put him in a direction and he had to go in that direction I don't think he had the best strategy which was what Caesar was excellent at and you know he was a great right hand man second in charge and I think being like the number one guy he's not great at it he shows us time and again that that is not his forte having Cleopatra by his side gives him a good strategist so there's that she can be a stabilizing force for him Absolutely. Mark Antony and Caesar had some key things in common that likely appealed to Cleopatra besides the fact that they were both powerful Romans who could support her rule. Like Caesar, Antony was sexually voracious and known for his preference for strong, intelligent women. He's got that big dick energy. Everybody knows it. Like Caesar, he specialized in seducing the world's elite, sophisticated women, the wives of Roman senators and client kings. But the reason those women liked these two men was probably very different. Caesar was urbane and sophisticated and brilliant, and Antony was down-to-earth and fun. Antony didn't have Caesar's intellect. No doubt Cleo connected more with Caesar on that level, but Antony was definitely a babe. Stacey Schiff describes him as, quote, curly-haired and square-jawed, a chiseled, broad-shouldered paragon of rude health. Swoon over here. That had to appeal to Cleopatra. Julius Caesar would like to say. Oh, Julius Caesar's here. Hi, Julius Caesar. Hello. Julius Caesar would like to remind you that Antony is a scoundrel. He's the type of deplorable friend who, the moment you are assassinated brutally by those who you've pardoned, decides to make it with your best girl. So are you saying that Mark Antony is just a spectacular disappointment in all ways? There was a time when I would have considered him not a spectacular disappointment, but I am glad that I left everything to Octavian. Oh, are you? Considering how it turned out? Considering what Antony does next, yes. Well, what about with Cleopatra and what happens to her? Cleopatra had to do what Cleopatra had to do to survive. Do you think I hit it on the nose, the difference between the two of you? I need to go for a bit and compose some poetry. I shall see you when I feel ready to speak about this matter again. I know that this is a difficult subject. So, you know, you might want to just, you know, like my dad with the war elephants, you might want to just go make yourself some tea, put some whiskey in the tea, drink the tea, and then turn it back on when you're done. (laughs) I think I'll go watch the Battle of Winterfell again and scream at my television. You know, there's other shows on HBO that are pretty good. You should try one of those. (laughs) (laughs) He's gone. (laughs) Anyway, Cleopatra and Antony had a lot in common. Both had extreme tendencies for self-aggrandizement, shocker, styling themselves as divinities on Earth, Cleo as the new Isis, and Antony as the new Dionysus. Both adored luxury and excess. Also, both had loved Caesar, fought battles with him, and known him just about as well as anyone in the world. And both have been absolutely screwed in his will. So after a few weeks, Cleopatra returned to Alexandria, and by winter, as soon as he possibly could, even though Rome was in shambles, there was still more blood to squeeze from the eastern provinces, and the Parthians were looming threateningly in the distance. Antony followed her. So that's it for this week. 
join us in two weeks for the next installment and for uh, whatever Julius Caesar whips up in the realm of poetry. <laughs> Remember, the pirates are most of them overboard for his poetry. I wouldn't expect much. You know what? I think somebody who was contemporaneous of Caesar said the best thing about Caesar's poetry was that none of it had survived. <laughs> <laughs> And in the meantime, connect with us on social at Ancient His Fan on Twitter or Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. If you want more of us, in the meantime, we have a Patreon where we now have several minisodes up. These are shorter episodes between 10 and 30 minutes. I mean, 30 minutes isn't that short, but you know, it's shorter than our normal ones. We just have a hard time being brief. We do. And these episodes deal with things that we didn't get to cover in our longer episodes. Starting at just $2 a month, I can not even get a cup of coffee for that. So for just $2 a month, you can subscribe and get more episodes from us in your feed. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash ancient history fangirl. Right now we have mini-sodes up on how Pompey cleared up the Mediterranean pirate problem in roughly 40 days, a story about an infamous pirate queen who lived a few centuries before Pompey, and Jen invited Julius Caesar back onto the podcast because he keeps bugging us to let him come back on the podcast to critique the Battle of Winterfell from Game of Thrones. I did. It was fun. <laughs> it was great, actually. That is a fun episode. If you ever asked yourself how Julius Caesar might fight an army of the undead, that's the episode to listen to. And you can only get it if you're on Patreon. So we have some Patreon members to call out this week, by the way, and they include C.R. Brandon, Shayna Bazic, and we apologize for any mispronunciation of names that might happen because it definitely will, and we're sorry. Rick Peavy, Rebecca Schmalholtz, Hannah G, Jennifer Schellenberg. That's my sister-in-law. Oh! Oh, hi, Jen, sister-in-law. And Chandra. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much. We vastly appreciate all the help you can give us to keep our podcast running. Subscribing to our Patreon is a great way to support us and one we really appreciate. But if you aren't ready to subscribe to something on a monthly basis, that's okay. We understand. You can also give to our Ko-Fi fund. The link is on the homepage to our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com. And you can kick us a few bucks there, enough to buy a coffee or a cocktail or who knows, maybe some research books. And we're thinking about putting up our reading lists if you want to help help us to pick up books that we need for future episodes. Let us know if that's something you'd be interested in doing and we'll set up some reading lists. And if you're not in a place to give money, we totally understand that too. Leave us a review. We really appreciate those two. They really give us a morale boost and they also help us in the algorithms. So thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in two weeks. 